Thomas and Frederick. With Thomas and Frederick. With Thomas and Frederick. Tomorrow to you, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to State of the Franchise, the podcast Jan discusses franchises of all shapes, sizes, backgrounds, genres, and types. I am one of thy hosts, Sir Thomas Stadler of Mequon, hither with mine fellow host and thy director for this evening, Mr. Frederick Dakin III. Valorous day, Fred, how art thee? Two podcasters, both alike in infamy, in Bayview, where we lay our scene, welcome to State of the Franchise. Where from forth the fatal loins of these two bros, a podcast takes flight. Welcome to Stay of the Franchise. I'm Fred, and that was Tom. <laughs> I, I love that we both each had our own bit that we clearly decided to write. <laughs> I wasn't not going to do mine, okay, Tom? You did yours, and that was cool, but I was like, I'm getting in there, too. No, you got to. Got to. I mean... Fred, it was it was the perfect table setter. Obviously, we're both feeling the vibes today because we're talking about Mr. Willie Shakes himself. Sir William Shakespeare. Uh, he is a sir, right? I don't even know if I've ever looked that up. Uh, n- no. I don't know if he's been knighted. He's not. No. Wow. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, being knighted for things like your um, contributions to the arts is... N- most likely not something they would have done back then and probably would not have done for a theater actor. Remember a lot of times the people in charge back then tried to shut the theaters down because the idea that theater is high art is not necessarily something that all um, ruling classes have agreed on over time. And Mm. I would imagine that some of our current rulers based on how they give absolutely zero money to the arts would be of that mind as well. But so no, it is not uh, Sir William. Man, they were just, yeah, not woke back in the late 16th century, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> well, Fred, I think without uh, without having to, to present too much, we, we are talking about the adaptations of William Shakespeare today. And you already heard one of our special guests today. We have two guests on with us today. One is Miss Beth Ann and one Mr. Patrick Schmitz. Welcome to the show. Hello. And welcome back, Beth. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be back with you. Yeah. Yeah. Excited to be here. Yes, I I understand Shakespeare is in the air right now with with both of you in your your personal lives. Yes, we are currently rehearsing for a parody that I wrote called The Comedy of King Lear, Kinda Sorta, which is the fifth one that I've written now. So that'll be going up August 10th through the 12th. Wow. Yeah. And so five of those already. So... But is that the fifth adaptation, not of Shakespeare, right? Just of a play? Uh, fifth of Shakespeare shows. And then I did two oh, others really? that were, one was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer parody and then Dracula parody as well. So seven parodies. Wow. Like, well, Tom Sawyer. I guess we're talking eight. Never mind. Eight <laughs> parodies that I've written. Yeah. Wow. And Beth, were you involved in all those Shakespeare productions too? Uh, I was in every single one of the things he just said. <laughs> Holy um, cow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because the um, the Tom Sawyer one was a radio show, and I know that there were two versions of that. But when it actually went out on the radio, I was in—I don't think it was in the stage version, but I was in the radio version that went out. Holy cow! Yeah. So, yes. So no, I've been in—I uh, often uh, tease Patrick because I've been in all of his shows except one, and 
Uh, we just had to get that out of the way right here at the yep, top. <laughs> yeah, it was play number two, and I thought, well, I'll kind of go all over the place with my casting. And then I realized it wasn't the same without Beth, and I never Aww. made that mistake again. <laughs> but yeah, no, he's not allowed to do these without me, I think. <laughs> yeah, of course, he can certainly make any choices he might, wants to make about his own, but I would be... Um, I would be crestfallen and heart crushed and uh, if I was not involved. But yeah, so I've been in all those. Love a Schmitz parody. Yeah. Yeah. They're fun to write. Mm -hmm. And to be in. Yeah. And to see. (laughs) Yeah. And we're looking forward to seeing the. uh... And to sponsor. And to sponsor. (laughs) (laughs) Are you trying to get this podcast to sponsor? We can sponsor. I, I. Do oh. or do not. There is no. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk after the after the interview. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll have our we'll have our little logo in the in the program, Fred. We have to get on that pretty quick then. <laughs> <laughs> but it's clear then that you both are very well steeped in Shakespeare adaptations. So it, it's great to have you both on to talk about this because I think when we talk about William Shakespeare, I mean. There isn't a lot to be said that hasn't already really been said over what I just said, you know, almost 500 years worth of, uh, you know, discussions around his plays. I mean, more accurately, 400, but still it's the the mere fact that this has been uh, shows and a medium that has been constantly produced, reproduced, readapted in so many different ways that there's a lot to discuss but I guess it, what I'm very curious, though, about um, to go talk to everybody here is maybe where you first got involved with the the playwright William Shakespeare, you know, whether it was a school assignment or, or otherwise. Uh, well, I will say when, you know, obviously high school is when most people are uh, introduced to it. And at that point, I just mentally and mature uh, maturity level wise, I was just not ready for it. Uh, I didn't understand it. Um, when I started working at first stage, Shakespeare was all around me. Everybody loved Shakespeare. And I Mm -hmm. felt like I was the odd man out a lot of times and I would watch it. And a lot of times I wouldn't understand it, but I would watch it and I would see everybody around me love this thing. And I, and it kind of hit me. I'm like, this is much like, much like understanding why Citizen Kane is such a great film. Like you have to study this in order to appreciate it. Sure. It's rare that you can just sit and fully appreciate why people love this work so much, unless you do the homework on it. And so then becoming a theater teacher, I'm like, I got to know Shakespeare more than I do. So as I was doing the uh, homework on that, (laughs) as I became a theater teacher, uh, I started to realize and understand just how great this work was. And unfortunately, well, maybe fortunately, it came the bits in my head constantly as I'm reading like Hamlet, for example. And I'm like, oh, it'd be funny if, but no, no, they gotta, I gotta know the real thing for my students. It's all about the students. (laughs) So uh, yeah, that was kind of my love for it. Uh, Doing the homework and talking to people about it, watching uh, different versions, either online or live. Um, And going back to my, teachers and friends at first age and just picking their brains apart as to why, why do why, you know, why the love for, for the work. And the number one answer I remember hearing was because Shakespeare of all the playwrights that my boss had experienced was Shakespeare was like the strongest playwright who actually 
understood what it meant to be a human being hmm. and actually dissected that and went into that and showed that. And uh, yeah, so that's my that's my Shakespeare uh, intro. Yeah, well, I, that's pretty interesting, though, too, to think about with the idea of him kind of being more of somebody who understands the humanity of it, because I think one of the hardest things, you know, I speak for more from a, a film study in this regard, but is that writing dialogue that sounds like real people would say it is one of the most difficult things. And I think it's an overappreciated or underappreciated aspect of what screenwriters can do talking about screenwriters getting paid and why they should get paid. It's because, you know, a, a robot's not going to be able to capture that, that emotion or that, that feeling and understanding how somebody acts and lives. And you really get a sense of who these people are, even for the time that it was written. And it's impressive to see it just kind of persevere all this time of what uh, onward now. What about you, Beth? Uh, Yeah. So I also was, you know, introduced to it in, in grades, I would have been grade school for me. Um, Mm -hmm. I had a really amazing eighth grade teacher, Miss J who um, would, how to put this? So we were going to see Hamlet in person. Mm. And um, she did this great thing of, she said, well, so what we're going to do before we go see it is we're going to learn what's happening. And it wasn't like we're going to read it and we're going to just sit, go home, read Hamlet, and that's it. We interacted with Hamlet. So she would give us like scenes to work, like to break down. And she we would see, you know, clips of movies or she'd read it aloud to us in the way that's the thing that I think often happens is unfortunately, um, teachers don't have enough time and they don't have enough resources. So they have to get through the Shakespeare thing and they, it's hard to make it come alive sometimes. So it's like, go home and read this. It's in a, it's, it's written in a language that's almost not a language we speak anymore. Um, and you have to read the footnotes to get the jokes. And this was something that wasn't meant to be read in the hand. It was meant to be listened to while it was performed or performed out loud. So she made sure that we did that, that we performed it a little bit or that we listened to it said that we saw things of it performing. So we went into, uh, the local high school's version of Hamlet, knowing what the story was right and understanding it Mm -hmm. and i remember thinking that there are probably a lot of other kids in that room who were like what is happening because it hadn't been you know introduced to them really and so from there it was just like oh this is really fascinating this is really well obviously well written these characters are really great there's a lot going on here beyond what's on the page you know so much of hamlet is characters um Shakespeare was fantastic at irony. Um, So it's a lot of characters not saying what they mean. And the interesting part comes from the fact that what they're saying is not matching how they feel. Right. And trying to read through that. I think that's probably the first time that I was really introduced to that kind of writing. Right. Where you Mm. couldn't trust anyone or what they were saying had these, these twists on it. There's a great um, Shakespearean uh, documentary in looking uh, called looking for Richard. And one of the, uh, uh, scholars in that says um, irony is just hypocrisy with style. And I think that's fantastic. And then, so that was interesting. And then uh, in high school, actually I got really into Shakespeare because I didn't get cast in a part that I wanted in another play. So I got cast in a play, uh-huh. but I got cast in a very small part. And I was a little sad about that as we are in high school. And a friend of mine yeah. who had kind of given up on uh, even trying out for the high school plays 
was like, interestingly enough, Patrick was first stage was working, was doing, uh, uh, classes at first stage. So my first, like really performing Shakespeare was as a student at, at, uh, first stage when I would have been maybe 15 or 16 years old. And the class we happened to take was a Shakespeare class. And it was just fantastic. It was really, um, it was the same kind of thing where we would break down uh, the text and we talk about the themes behind it. And this particular one focused on the sonnets, which I thought was a really interesting thing to do as well. And then you you could go home and you could um, memorize one and perform one. And I just remember it being like, okay, now I'm, I'm really hooked. And then, yeah, and then college, I kept studying it. I actually took a class at the Globe the uh, in um, in London and I have performed on that stage Whoa. as part of that class. Um, so it's just, sort of, that's amazing. Yeah. So it's really, uh, something that I've been very, very fortunate and it's something that has sort of permeated, um, uh, my theater training since I was young. And it all started with, as so many things do, it all started with a really good teacher. Good. Got to give it up for the teachers. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And yeah. I mean, and that's a credit to Patrick, too, as somebody who, um, when he was young, wasn't maybe presented with it in a way that it fired him up. He found a way to make it interesting for him so that he could make it interesting for his students. And what's really fun about doing one of the things that's really fun about doing these parodies is that often um, like a former student will be in it or there's young people. So like late teens, early twenties who are taking part. And that's uh, that's always one of my favorite things is getting to work with the really um, like the people who are just coming out of that high school experience and enjoying Shakespeare in this other way. I think that's a really uh, great thing to be a part of. That's really amazing. I mean, it's I mean, it's cool that you and Patrick go back so far. So I guess you really both do have roots in this. So even deeper than on the surface that I knew yeah. about. Yeah. But also, wow, amazing that you got to actually perform at the Globe Theater. Like that's an experience not many people get. Yeah, right? no, I was very, very lucky that as part of uh, a part of my undergraduate program, I was I took a class called Playing Shakespeare, and it it ended in doing um, uh, doing some doing some sonnet work and doing, in my case, a scene from Love's Love's Labor's Lost on that stage. So that was yeah, that's. It's just like, uh, I I love everything about my performance career, but that's always going to be hard to top when I was like 22. And I was like, okay, well, we're just going to have to peak and then try to keep it going. But I will say I've uh, stood on, you know, like the next act stage as as Lady Macbeth for Patrick's thing and felt every bit as honored and um, blessed, if that's a word you want to say, or, or proud and happy about standing on that stage doing Patrick stuff as I felt that because it just was it's it's such a great thing to get to be a part of sorry anyway go ahead that's me yeah I think it's uh it's really cool though to to be able to I think share in so many different experiences over time um especially just going from something as big and like grandiose as that to yeah it's like here's a great local production where you get to do I mean something that somebody has really never done before with how you've written the script. Right. And like you get to do it in a totally different way. Um, and I know Fred and I had the opportunity to see a show recently. I think we both went to the Dracula one together. I don't know, but Fred, what about you? Where did your uh, Shakespeare journey begin? Do you recall? Oh, Bill and I go way back. Um, <laughs> I remember on a, my first trip to England when I was 10 or 11, this is one of those trips where, you go when you're too young and you don't really appreciate it. 
But I got to actually go to uh, was it Stratford upon Avon, Whoa. something like that, and I got to see like his school, I believe, and uh, I got to go to the Globe. I didn't see a show there, but I saw the outside of it. And when I went to high school, kind of similar to Beth, I did have a teacher who she kind of fed me a way that it's kind of a boring way to get into Shakespeare. But I do recommend it for people who are kind of struggling to connect with the languages. You get like the cliff notes or the books that have like the very basic text. It's kind of like a translation, but it's very simple to read. I feel if you can get through that watch an adaptation of some sort that is using the language. So first you have, like, I know what it's about. Then you get the visual language. And then by the third time, you can go see it on stage and just take it in because you know the story, you kind of know the character beats. And that's always been my approach because I do love it, but I can't watch it and just pick it up because I probably don't uh, ingest it enough. I'm not with it enough. Um uh, that's why I do like, you know, with our topic today, we're talking about adaptations. I do like anything that can feed someone into the original version. And what's funny about Shakespeare is a lot of his stories are actually kind of even older stories. And he's just kind of like uh, I was talking to my brother, who is an English teacher on the way home. And he was and I was talking about Romeo and Juliet. And he was like, well, that's like a way old story. He just kind of did his version of it. And he adds his language, he adds his um, characters, and makes something that has lasted for a long time. And uh, I just want to go back to that trip. I'm pretty sure he was kind of a little little bit of a scoundrel. I'm pretty sure uh, we saw him do, like, I think he signed on a desk. Like, he, like, scribbled into a desk. And I don't know if that was, like, this could have been him or if this was actually him. I just like the idea that he was causing trouble yeah. in school. Because I can relate to that. <laughs> Is, yeah, that's that's very interesting. I was thinking, like, oh, I wonder if it was based on Tristan and Isolde. But I think that that wasn't exactly the the fuel for that. And I'll lean on our, our some of our Shakespeare experts here to, to fact check me on that. Is it more just more about like a Romeo and Juliet type story? Well, there's multiple I- inspirations, right? And then there's the, there's the actual Tristan and Isolde as well. So Tristan and Isolde is the one um, that, and that, that's the one that most people um, say because it has very similar themes. Yes. Yeah, so, Mm-hmm. Tristan Isolde is the same kind of thing where they're not allowed to be together and there's a misunderstanding and, and all that kind of stuff. But yes, yeah, so absolutely, Fred's right that a lot of the a lot of the things that we think of Shakespeare came up with this story. Um, that's not true. He, he, you know, even Macbeth is a story that comes from someplace else, right? Wow. It's the way that he told the story that made it interesting, right? And that's something that I think is interesting about parroting parodying Shakespeare is that sometimes you mm-hmm. get the people who are, who um, don't want you to parody Shakespeare because it's sacrosanct. Right. And, and, mm-hmm. and that story should stand exactly how it is. And then there's purists who, if you're going to perform Shakespeare, you should never abridge it or you should never change anything and all that kind of stuff. And what's interesting about that is that, yes, so often Shakespeare himself was not, was telling his version of a classic story um yeah but what makes that important is that the shakespeare version is the version that comes through and there's a reason for that right 
there's a reason that the Shakespeare mm-hmm. version of that story is the version we all know. And it's not because he had a great publicist, right? Um, <laughs> they, it was popular, sure. So people go into the Globe and all that kind of stuff and uh, had a good a troop of actors around him. But the things that last, last for a reason, and I think that's something about about Shakespeare's adaptations uh, of the stories that had already existed. That's very interesting, but yes. Yeah, it's just a, a whole element that I didn't really know about, so I'm glad you brought it up, Fred, and I'm glad you were able to expand on it, Beth, mm-hmm. because, yeah, it's it's such a... It feels so meta to even just be like, well, we're doing things about Shakespeare adaptations, but then it's really like, yeah, well, he, he also is was an adapter himself, and I don't know. It's kind of twisted to think that people would be like so like, oh, you you can't... You can't do a parody of this. You can't do this. It's like, man, like one of my favorite childhood memories is watching Wishbone, like do yeah. a, a Shakespeare play of the Tempest. Like, yeah. Fred and I were just talking about Wishbone earlier. Yeah. <laughs> and those and those people terrify me. At least they did. I don't know. If... You know what? It might be controversial to say this. Those guys sound like bad hangs. <laughs> just got to say. <laughs> I, I will say, I think... So, yes, sometimes there are people like, how dare you? You don't have any right to do this, all that kind of stuff. And those people, maybe I don't want to spend uh, an evening with them. But I also think that we're talking about Shakespeare in in the ways that we love it. And I think to some people, when something is dear to them, you know, Mm -hmm. they don't want somebody making fun of it in an in a way that is cruel or that is saying that it's bad. Right. So I think Mm -hmm. there's a fine line between irreverent and disrespectful. Right. So what the shows we're doing are, and what the best Shakespeare adaptations or parodies are to me are ones that are not disrespectful of it. They may not have Mm -hmm. reverence for it in a sense of like, we cannot make any changes um, or we cannot do any of those kind of stuff, Um, but they're not disrespectful of it. And so that's something that I do tell people when I say I'm in a Shakespeare parody and they're like, Oh, I'm a big fan of Shakespeare. It's like, no, it's not making fun of Shakespeare. It's making fun out of Shakespeare, which is very different, mm-hmm. right? Yep. I noticed that right away in the Nomeo and Juliet film, <laughs> which I yeah. started watching because I was like, oh, this would be interesting. And the first thing they do is the little gnome comes out and he starts with the prologue and he doesn't finish it because he's like, yeah. And then some other boring stuff is said. And I'm like, okay, well, you've just you've just started off the show saying I – don't like this stuff, but we're going to, we're going to parody it anyway. And I, you know, I, I do have that fine line when writing because I do respect those people because like Beth said, there's a very deep place in their heart of why this is so special to them. And I want to show respect to those people as well as respecting the people who have no idea what the story is about. And I want them to be able to follow Mm -hmm. it as well. Yeah, it derives from, I think, a fundamental misunderstanding of what you what even parody means. And I I think of nothing better than like all those stupid movies that came out in the early aughts of Mm -hmm. like epic movie or like Meet the Spartans or whatever that crap was. And I'd watch those and I felt dumber after I watch them because I'm like, it's like you're misunderstanding what what the idea is that you're trying to parody. Mm -hmm. Like there's a reason Naked Gun makes sense and it's funny versus what you're yes. doing yeah. yeah sorry mel brooks from you know i think is sort of the a lot of for a lot of people the gold standard of parodying certain genres mm-hmm. right like um 
two things I think have to be true. And this is coming out of one of the things is coming out of something that Mel Brooks said, which is that like in order to parody something properly, you have to know it and love it more than the people who know it and love it more than anything else. You know what I mean? So like in order Mm -hmm. to do a good parody, you have to have love for the subject and knowledge of the subject that is beyond what even the most like people who the people who love it the most like this is their favorite westerns are my favorite kind of movie horror movies are my favorite kind of movie because that's the only way that you can get to something about that genre or story that people who love it will recognize and either be like oh that is true that's something i recognize that's familiar that's funny or suddenly realize about something that they've really liked that maybe they never would never had put directly in front of them before You know what I mean? Um, When you can get to something in a parody, that's the essence of something. And you can make that sort of, you can make that subtext text in a way. Um, You can really win over, I think, sometimes the people who really love that thing. Because it's like, oh my gosh, you have so much knowledge of this and love for this that you've pulled out something that I myself didn't even notice, but that's really, really true. Right. And so what, what's, and so that's why I think the Mel Brooks movies are so good and why to your point, Tom, that's, I actually had that written down in my notes to talk about today. Like the reason those early aught parodies don't work is because they have neither love nor knowledge of those things. Um, Mm -hmm. They could have written all of those. Some of there might be a good one. I honestly don't know. Um, But they could have watched the trailers for those movies and then written the parody of them. They're not saying anything new. They're just like, this is something that happens in those movies. Isn't it funny that this is like, no, we know that happens in the movie. Like, that's not interesting. You're not adding anything to this conversation or to our shared vernacular about it. Right. But when, like I said, you get somebody who does parody really well and you're going, Oh yeah, you know what? I never really noticed that about it. Or I thought I was the only one who noticed that about it. Or that's my favorite thing about this thing that I love so much. And I'm so happy that somebody else on there found that or like, Oh, you know what? That is the one thing I don't like about this thing that I like. And it's so funny that you've caught on that too. And we're playing gentle fun with it. So, uh, yeah. So that's where I think about, uh, sort of good parody and loving parody versus not great. I wouldn't say this is a good movie or a super funny one, but I think it's a movie that does that well. That's a Mel Brooks movie is the Dracula dead and loving it. Something that I've accidentally called the Dracula (laughs) kind of sort of a few times by accident, (laughs) because that was a movie I had on VHS. But I do remember in school when we read Dracula going back and watching that they were playing with the text in a way that was more interesting than just like you said, like a epic movie where, we're going to throw in a character, you know, and he's going to say something dumb and then that we're going to move on. Yeah. We're going to take like the book, take the characters and find jokes within that. I think that's that's definitely the key to parody. Yeah. Those movies were like the the uh, the culmination of like the Leo sitting on his couch pointing at the screen. Like that's almost like what they are. It's just repeated jokes like that mm-hmm. versus, you know, like Dracula doesn't love any young Frankenstein are very like. Clearly, he loved watching these when he was younger and wanted to do something interesting with those properties. And I think Young Frankenstein done to a much better degree than <laughs> Dracula. But still, yeah. this is not a Mel Brooks podcast. This is a Shakespeare yeah. podcast. And, and, and parody has to have a point of view and it has to say mm-hmm. something new. It can't just be mimicry. 
Cause that's, mm-hmm. that's not parody. You know what I mean? That's just, that's just copying. It has to have its own. Yeah. It has to have the point that it's making about it. Right. Um, yeah. It needs to be wit. Yeah. There has to be wit behind it. It has to get to an essence and, but it has to, it has to decide something about what it's going to parody before it can do that. Whereas like you said, I think some of those movies are just like, here's a line from that, that very popular film that came out. Isn't it funny that we're saying it in our movie? Like, no, that's not, you don't have a point of view. You're not giving me anything. So um, I, I do like adaptations. And I think um, I also think like to your point, wishbone, like, how great is it to give young students a way into a much more complex story? Right. <laughs> right. It's, yeah. it's a, it, and so some of those, some of the parodies are particularly the ones that are done for children are just a really great way to give people an entrance point into something, you know, so that when they get to Shakespeare, they're like, Oh, this is familiar. I know this. I also think for people who don't like Shakespeare very much, I think it can be one of those things that, um, I remember when the Lord of the Rings came out, which I know isn't Shakespeare, but what I, by making a point, um, when Lord of the Rings came out, there were people who didn't like it and they're like, well, that's just D and D. And it's like, no, no D and D got all that <laughs> from this. Right. So sometimes people will see a Shakespeare and they'll be like, well, that's just the classic story. And it's like, yeah, this is where that classic story comes from. And in some cases, actually there was another version of that story. And this is just the version that got through is the Shakespeare version. Um, but I think it also suffers from that sometimes too, is people are like, um, there's a great thing, Stephen Moffat. So bringing up one of our favorite Dr. Who showrunners, when he was writing Sherlock, he said what was tough about writing Sherlock was writing it in a way that was different because people know it so well. And he said, it's the same way that Hamlet feels like it's full of quotes. So it's hard to make Hamlet interesting because people know Hamlet so well that you can feel like it's just an actor quoting all those famous Hamlet lines. But those Hamlet lines are still really good. You just have to find a way to make those sort of new and interesting and accessible for people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's definitely what a lot of these adaptations that we're going to be talking about here to have varying degrees of success with, because a lot of them are very much that straight to screen here we we know exactly what we're going to present to you and you know we're not even going to try and add a new perspective on it this is just bringing it to a screen and showing you exactly what it what it should have been versus others that take a big swing and are like no yeah we know we're doing hamlet you know we talked we mentioned the the lion king already but we're going to do something so different that you're almost going to barely recognize that it is hamlet right and that's like it, it's something worth applauding but also it's like it's like yeah it also reminds people that like even your favorite thing probably had roots in shakespeare <laughs> so um and maybe that's a a good segue to start talking about some of these actual adaptations um so i'll just start with a brief history for us so uh, mr william shakespeare since he's not sir as we have established was born and raised by the way in really Stratford. quickly i did look this yes. up and so um currently most like actors or artists who get knighted get an obe the order of the british okay. empire and i just wanted to look that up um that didn't come out to the early 1900s so they wouldn't have been doing that during shakespeare's time they wouldn't have been shakespeare's time they mainly would have been celebra- celebrating military or government officials with a knighthood and also right. they wouldn't it's very unlikely they would have uh, knighted someone who was poor and not part of the 
the landed people as well. So um, now when you see an actor or someone um, who is knighted or, or Dame Judy Dench or whatever, they most often have an OBE, which is a order of the British empire, which was in the early 1900s. So that's why back then it would have been a military or government honor. Mostly good on the <laughs> pretty sure that in gold member, that's what Austin powers gets. He gets right. the OBE. Right. There is another uh, one that they get a little less often that I can't remember off the top of my head, but the actors that, you know, uh, or performers that you know, often have the OBE. If they're not government or military, they usually have an OBE. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Got it. No, that's good to know. And that would be why, I mean, yeah, and you're exactly right. So obviously Shakespeare, Probably not very well, real regarded by the the queen. Despite what um, what was the what was the movie Shakespeare in Love tried to tell us that he actually got to meet the queen and all that. And who knows? Uh, but um, we'll talk about that. In a well, bit. I think for like a modern like kind of, I was just gonna say like I just think about a Knight's Tale, isn't it? Um, Bettany's kind of supposed to be like Chaucer, and he's kind of like this guy like in the beginning he doesn't look like someone who would be knighted and is kind Mm -hmm. of like covered in dirt and like i think of like thespians at the time were definitely not getting the love like actors would now no no and it makes sense it makes a lot of sense i think you're right though for sure i think he's like stark naked like this is like introduction right Mm -hmm. and that to me is like i feel showing what the vibe was of how people felt about like writers or actors at the time yeah for sure. So, William Shakespeare was born and raised in Stratford-upon-Avon, which Fred said he visited in Warwickshire. Um, and correct me if I'm getting any of these names wrong with you guys. At the age of 18, he married Anne Hathaway, not the theater kid uh, energy can Hathaway. What? But... <laughs> <laughs> with whom he had three children, Susanna and his twins, Hamnet and Judith. Hamnet, not Hamlet. So, uh, Sometime between 1585 and 1592, he began a successful career as a London actor, writer, and part owner of the playing company. We had discussed uh, Lord Chamberlain's men in the Globe Theater, um, but they were later known as the Kingsmen. And at age 49, uh, he appears to have retired to Stratford, where he died three years after that. So it's about 1613 to 1616. As of 2004, we're jumping way ahead. The Guinness Book of World Records recognizes over 410 feature-length film and TV versions of William Shakespeare's plays, making Shakespeare the most filmed author ever in any language. And as of June 2020, the Internet Movie Database, better known as IMDb, lists Shakespeare as having writing credit on 1,500 films, including those under production but not released. Uh, the earliest known production or a screen adaptation was called King John from 1899. So jumping into adaptations, I have a little game I would like to play with you all. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, boy. So I went and researched the top 25 uh, critically rated Shakespeare adaptations on Rotten Tomatoes. I want to see if maybe in just a couple guesses you can get any of the top five. So you might have to really dig down, but maybe even stumble across one. I'll give you credit if you get just an adaptation of the play. Extra credit if you can get who directed or starred in it. 
And we're talking adaptations, not just the version of the play itself. Um, so yeah, it would be it would be a movie adaptation, but it can be a a straight adaptation of the play. So if it was well regarded enough, they might have given it a ninety nine percent or something on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, I'm just gonna see just because everyone knows this one, Lion King. Would that be on there? The Lion King is on the list, but it comes in at number 12 wow. with a 94%. Okay. Wow. Okay. Uh, okay. Meter. Uh, West Side Story? Top five? West Side Story also on the list at number 13 with a 92% rating, just behind the Lion All King. All right. Is, is Fred in on this, or does he know the answers? No, he doesn't. Oh. No, I was, I was going to throw out a guess. I'm going to guess... Some more modern. I'll go with uh, Romeo plus Juliet. Ooh, the Baz Luhrmann one? Oh, yeah. That comes in at number 25 on the head. Oh, 73% Ooh, tomato meter. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess the Kenneth Breno Hamlet film. Ooh. Just missed the top five. That one Ooh. is number 10. Oh, the okay. 95%. You're getting warmer okay. though with, with right. that kind of guess. So now okay. I'm just thinking of other um Henry V, the Kenneth Branagh. Yes. Number two, ninety-eight percent rating. Which one? Henry V. Henry V. Oh, okay. I, I mean I know other ones, but I, I'm sure um mm-hmm. that- I uh, well I don't think ten things I hate about you would make the top critics list. It's very classic uh Shakespeare adaptation, but I don't think it's gonna make the top IMDB. Mm. <laughs> yeah, just missed the top okay. twenty-five. It was uh, below William or William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet. I'm gonna say the same um, thing about uh, she's the man, the Twelfth Night um, er, er, uh, adaptation starring Amanda Bynes. <laughs> I think that also exists, but is not on the list you're talking about. Nah. Um, yep. is, is there a is there a Macbeth in there? Maybe the Ian McKellen Macbeth is on there with young Dame Judi Dench. I'm going to guess Ian McKellen, King Lear. Okay. We have two Ian McKellen Ooh. ones out there. What are they? Okay. So yeah. the Ian McKellen, you said Macbeth. I'm trying mm-hmm. to see if it's on the list here. It's old and it's possible that it, that might not even qualify. Cause I think it's, it, it's a filmed version, but it's almost just a film version of the play. So mm-hmm. that be on there. Yeah, I am not seeing that one. And then the other one was King Lear with him. I was also thinking the Taming of the Shrew movie. Yeah. What about the Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor Taming of the Shrew? The Taming of the Shrew. That one is on the list. That Kenneth Branagh one. But that one is that one is number twenty-two. I was thinking Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton. Yeah, the Burton and Elizabeth Taylor one is number Ooh. twenty-two. Uh, the the Ian McKellen King Lear is not on the top twenty-five. Is the Anthony Hopkins King Lear on the top twenty-five? That's much more recent. That That's one. Matt Thompson and uh, uh, Francis Miss- Hugh. I do not see it. No. That's a shame. That's a good one. Which, listen. I'll throw in Titus if we're talking uh, Tony. That one also did not make it. Okay. Oh, I'm do we sorry. Have an 
I'm sorry. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I have an amendment. Uh-oh. I have an amendment. The Anthony Hopkins King Lear is on the list. Number, hey. number 17. Yeah, it's good. It's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. I like that. Yep. Uh, Lawrence Olivier Hamlet. <laughs> now we're cooking here. That that's one... what I was saying when you interrupted me with your update. But that's fine. <laughs> that is number eight. So we're still oh. we still only have one of the top five on here. I'll give you guys a couple more guesses and then I'll say. I'm really that. hoping the Lawrence Olivier Othello isn't on the list because that's deeply Yikes. problematic. Yeah. Uh, no. What about what about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead? Yeah, that's a good one. That one is not Ooh, on the list. Not what? on the top twenty-five. I would that like to speak be number to one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, which one? all right. All right, all right. Fuck it. What about the Northman? <laughs> I don't know that the Northman was oh. on the list of um, the top 25. Let me see where it would have fallen, though, Fred. It would be on my list. The North, If the Northman had counted among this list, it would have fallen around the 1920 mark. Yeah. What about the Trevor Nunn? I would say Othello, the Trevor Nunn version. That also has Ian McKellen in it. What about Othello? I don't see any Othello on this, this list. This list is nuts, and I'm getting angry. Not even just O with Mackay Pfeiffer? <laughs> no, I've, that was not that good. <laughs> what about the, the Romeo and Juliet from the 60s? Where they got in trouble with you know, the nudity. Is that one on there? It is on there. That one is the um, number 11. Oh. Yep. Directed by Franco Zeffirelli. Oh, I know uh, what's on there. Mel Gibson as wow. Hamlet. <laughs> yep. Uh, I don't think his made the list. I don't think. What about Let's Ethan Hawke's uh, Hamlet? I'm, I'm just naming at this point. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> no. Oh, oh, Shakespeare in Love. Does Shakespeare in Love count? Oh, God. I did not, did not see Shakespeare in Love. Because I think these are so strictly... Shakespeare adaptations, and that's okay. I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. Yeah, I'll give you each one more guess, and then I will tell you what the top five are. All are um, it is um, the Much Ado About Nothing with Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson as Beatrice and Benedict in there. It is on the list at number 18. Hodge, uh, what about Macbeth with uh, Star Trek, dude? Star Trek, dude, (laughs) (laughs) I hit. I can't think of his name right now. Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart. Uh, not seeing that one. Okay. All right. Nope. Oh, oh, the Midsummer Night's Dream with Stanley Tucci and and Michelle Pfeiffer. No, not on the list. God, I don't like this list. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Fred, you get one more guess to hit, hit something. I remember that Patrick Stewart Macbeth was on Netflix for a long time, and it's just him like staring you right in the face. Like I just remember every time when I would scroll through Netflix, I would just have to say Macbeth. (laughs) 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 Wonderful. Is there? I'm just going to ask: Is there a Julius Caesar at all on the list? There's been. Oh sure, there sure is a Julius Marlon Brando Caesar. Yep, it is the Brando. Number seven. Yeah, directed by Mank Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Is either Pacino's Richard the Third or Merchant of Venice on the list? 
It is not. Maybe Neither it's... of those are. I do want to talk about looking for Richard because that I didn't realize that Al Pacino made that documentary. Yeah, absolutely. And my teacher from the Globe is in it. What? Mm. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh nice. His name was also Patrick. Oh, that's right. I had the Merchant of Venice Pacino uh, version. <laughs> I've seen that yeah. as well. That's good. That's yeah. not on the list, unfortunately. But all right, what's on the da- what's on this dang list? <laughs> okay, number one is Henry V with Laurence Olivier. Okay. Yep. All right, all right. Number three. This one's gonna really rock your noggin. Forbidden Planet, which is yes, an- I I was gonna guess that one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Which is an adaptation of The Tempest. Directed mm-hmm. by Fred Wilcox and starring Leslie Nielsen. Speaking of Naked yep. Gun. Wow. <laughs> yep. Full yep. circle. The first true sci-fi films, Forbidden Planet is a fantastic movie. Uh, there's literally monsters of the id uh, attacking. That's fantastic. Oh, my so gosh. I'm so <laughs> mad that you said it before I did because I was like, oh, Forbidden Planet is a Shakespeare one. And then I forgot to say it. <laughs> <laughs> I had to present on Forbidden Planet for another show one time. So oh, I learned a lot. Wow. Forbidden Planet. Yeah. I really want to watch it now because it sounds yeah. amazing. It's great. It's really good. It holds up. And Leslie Nielsen when he was a serious actor. Yeah. I was just going to say, I just remember hearing that's where he's like just straight up acting in that. He's not playing a goofball. Yeah, it's, he was a serious actor for a long time. And that's why the, the why the brothers picked him because he, the no, the thing is he doesn't change his delivery of a line in naked gun or police squad from when he how he did it in a straight movie and that's why it works because mm-hmm. he's not telling a joke he's taking himself 100 percent seriously that also works the opposite way i just heard a uh uh interview regarding like with breaking bad taking on brian cranston like comedians are able to you know dig into that deepness and that uh that seriousness as well so it's fun to see the reversals happen mm-hmm. as well yeah, you get to see them emote in a way that maybe a dramatic actor doesn't think about, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Number four is Chimes at Midnight, which is an adaptation of Henry the Fourth, directed and starring Orson Welles mm-hmm. in 1965. I was, was going to say, is there an Orson Welles in there somewhere? I think, though, it's more commonly known, though, as Falstaff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because it was interesting. I tried looking up the movie... And I typed in chimes at midnight and then it came up as Falstaff. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I love Orson Welles' work and um, I find his Shakespeare adaptations to be dull. <laughs> I'll just say it. I just find them to, like I I love Kane and um, I know he's just in it, the but the third man movie, movie, the Muppet movie is a fantastic work. <laughs> You're right, um, but I find his yeah. uh, his his uh, radio versions of I Shakespeare, are very good, but I find his um, film versions to be dull. Uh, anyway, sorry. <laughs> fair criticism. Fair criticism. Yeah. Number five was also very close to number six, and they're actually worth mentioning in the same breath because they are directed by the same director. One of them is Ran, which is an adaptation of King Lear, directed by Akira Kurosawa. Oh, wow. And number six oh. is Throne of Blood, which is an adaptation of Macbeth, also directed by Kurosawa. Hmm. Nice. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> it sounds interesting, right? Just because. Oh, I remember it. 
Yeah, I mean, just to see a a Japanese director's take on Shakespeare kind of put into maybe something more imperial at that time, right? Mm-hmm. So, and it stars a lot of his his uh, his classic uh, cast members like uh, Tatsuya Nakadai and Toshiro Mufune. Um, so, definitely, we're all over the board here, right? And I think the reason I wanted to do this little test at first, I think it was a good way for us to start throwing a lot of these adaptations out into the ether. So we can start picking up them one by one and being like, wow, look at how far we've gone. We've gone from Lawrence Olivier back in 1946 to, you know, Anthony Hopkins back in 2018 or Ian McKellen back in 1994. And then you have Kenneth Branagh, who like owned the early 90s, late 80s with all of his adaptations. Right. So you have a lot of people who have this steeped experience with these screen adaptations. And it's just like and there's so many different ones that we see, too. Between, yeah, you have Ran, which is like a Japanese interpretation of it, and you have The Lion King, which is an animated <laughs> interpretation musical. Like, it, it's it's a wonder that we've seen so many different takes. I don't know if uh, any of you guys have any that you really want to speak to specifically that kind of came up. I will say, I when I first saw uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, I thought that was just such a clever way of taking a story that at this point, this is the only Shakespeare show that I really, really dissected from college and to see just like, Oh, let's just play with this. Let's have this from somebody else's point of view. And then obviously the comedy helped too. Uh, just, uh, I, so I, I just, that was the first kind of spinoff adaptation parody, whatever you want to call it, that I, I that really stuck out for me. That's great. And who, um, I'm trying to look up who directed the movie. Because are you speaking more about the actual, like, like adaptation first? Or are you talking about, like, an actual movie adaptation of it? Well, the movie itself was great. But I, just the idea of it, I thought. I just remember it clicking of, I mean, yes, the acting was great. And the, uh, the cinematography, all that stuff. But the idea of taking a story and looking at it from a different point of view, I just was like, this is really interesting. So... I mean, Tom Stoppard wrote it. Um, I'm not sure who directed. Looks like he directed it too. Oh, did he? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well done. Yeah. Is that like Tim Roth and Gary Oldman? Yes. <laughs> what? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's fantastic. The, the other brilliant thing about it was they spoke into contemporary language and then they inserted moments of like the actual Shakespearean writing and in, in the play in the in the story itself as well which i thought oh that is just that must have been so fun to write i just yeah right loved it so i'm actually not super familiar with the the story itself i only know that it's some kind of spin on hamlet right mm-hmm. so what's kind of the what's the conceit is it just sort of a different perspective in the story it's what's going on during the play, when Rosencrantz and Gilstern are not in the play, what's going on between those two characters? So you follow them instead of ever anyone else. Wow. It's kind of like Lion King one and a half. And that I would, yep, absolutely. So oh my God. <laughs> Wait, literally? Because each of the Lion oh, yeah. Kings is a sh- yeah, yes, each of the Lion Kings yeah. is a Shakespeare adaptation adaptation. Yes, it is. The first it's... one's King Lear, one and a half is Rosencrantz. Yep. yep. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> I had no idea. So is, is the Lion King one and a half? Is that, uh, is that just following Timon and Pumbaa like the whole time? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. 
<laughs> Very smart. I've never I've never seen either the Lion King sequels or half sequels. <laughs> I, I will say Lion King one and a half is not as good as Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. <laughs> I think that's fair. In my, in my in my humble and personal opinion, but I give <laughs> I give them the respect for trying and following the the this yeah. you know just the style of oh you know Lion King is Hamlet. How about we make the sequel Rosencrantz and Guildenstern? Like I just thought it yeah. was really fun. It, that is a, a wonderful thing that they did. And then Lion King Two is Romeo and Juliet. Yes. Oh, is that about Simba's son or or something like that? Or His daughter, Kiara, uh, and uh, Narabi's. I think it's like her his sister's kid, something like that. Her sister's kid. <laughs> yeah, because I think something. It's some familiar thing. Well, we'll, we'll cover okay. it on the pod. Don't worry. All right. And and Lion King 4 is Titus Andronicus, which I think was a mistake. <laughs> I mean, it works with lions to be eating each other. It, I mean, I thought that was a bold choice mm-hmm. on Disney's part. <laughs> my goodness. I mean, oh my God. let's talk a little about the Lion King, though, itself, right? Because I think that's easily... One of the stories, I mean, probably one of the earlier stories that a kid will probably stumble into Shakespeare, right? And But it's presented in a way that doesn't really resemble Shakespeare at all, unless you're looking for the story beats. And it's just, I don't know. I, and I think that's when, you know, Disney was kind of clicking on all cylinders with their animation studio, you know, with all apologies to Frozen and whatever else is coming out recently. But you certainly see... I think exactly what we're talking about is like there's a, sort of an irreverence for that play that comes to life on the screen, but just looks something like completely unique to anyone who would not be aware, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a great thing to tell my students to make that connection right off the bat when they're introduced to Shakespeare. It's one of the first things I introduce to them is if you've seen Lion King, you've seen Hamlet, and for them to see that in the real world and make that connection right off the bat, they're interested. They're like, oh, this is something that's out there. This is not something brand new to me. So they take a little bit of that ownership, which I think is important for a student to care about something where there's a little bit of, oh, I know this, at least to a certain extent. Right. It's kind of their gateway, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's important. I think kids definitely need that to be like, oh, I can care about this because it's kind of going back to the the Lord of the Rings and Dungeons and Dragons conversation. I think some people probably found that gateway to Lord of the Rings by probably through a love of Dungeons and Dragons. So it's like something more, I guess, modern in air quotes, but, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to add, and that's probably why they were able to get certain people to do it, like Jeremy Irons. I'm sure he relish the idea that he was going to be doing some version of King Lear or Hamlet King Lear for sure. No, it's Ham Hamlet Hamlet. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. King Lear is kind of like succession. That's what I learned today when I was reading the summary. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Patrick, Patrick knows I haven't watched any of succession yet. And he's like chomping at the bit for me to start. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. Uh, only bits it's and pieces. So good. Have you seen Empire? No. Okay. Well, kind of same here. I mean, I've seen all of Succession, but yeah, well, Empire is also King. Hmm. That's very interesting. I made the connection, although I'm not super familiar with King Lear myself. And they actually reference it in the very first episode. Empire was a good time in television for a while. Yeah. 
Empire was the one with uh, uh, Terrence. Um, yeah. What's his last name? Howard. Yeah, Terrence Howard, right? And yeah, and and tried to be Henderson, and yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Yep. Correct. Yeah. So yeah, I'm not super familiar with King Lear, though. So what? A, a great, great chance to talk a little about that too, and maybe any adaptations that you like with King Lear. What what is the conceit of King Lear? Um, I, w- I just, I mean, in a nutshell, it's a, a king who is retiring and giving away. He's got to give away his land and his t- his title and his power, pretty much. And he's got his three daughters, and he's got to choose which one to, which one uh, he's going to. Ideally, he's going to divide it equally. But he plays this little game with them of they have to tell them how much they love him, and whoever expresses their love the most will get the most, like the best, like quality land. And so the first two evil sisters go. Uh, the first two evil daughters, I guess, go first, and they just, you know, plaster a smile <laughs> on their face and tell them tell them what he needs to hear. And then Cordelia, his favorite daughter, the youngest, refuses to pretty much play the game. She's like, "I love you as much as I can. I don't know how to. I'm this. I don't know. I don't know what you want from me. I love you. Like, there's nothing more than the love I have for you." And he gets all pissed and disowns her and. Uh, slowly goes mad due to the fact that his other two daughters treat him like absolute garbage and uh, ends up living out in nature and (laughs) realizes what it means to be a human being or just a man uh, without clothing, without protection, without power, without nobility, without, you know. So he kind of learns that lesson of what what it means to just the simpleness of what it is to be a man. Wow. So it really is succession. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it really sounds like the two daughters aren't serious people, and that's the problem. No. Um, and, you know, it, so Beth and I and a group of us went and saw a show, uh, Gods, of, Gods of Spies. Is that what it was, Beth? God Spies. God's Spies. And there was, so it's a show about uh, Shakespeare writing, you know, he's trapped in in an in a inn due to a uh, um, disease going around. And so they're like, they're quarantined pretty much in an inn. And he ends up writing King Lear in this inn. And one of the people in the show, one of the characters, uh, stresses how important a backstory is for characters. And this Shakespeare, the guy, the character of Shakespeare in the show is like, ah, backstory. No one cares about the backstory. They want to know what's happening now. What's happening now? And so eventually she's like, no, the backstory is very important. Like, how's this for a backstory? King Lear treated his wife like absolute crap and beat her. And the two older daughters know about this. And the younger daughter was never informed of this. And this is why the two daughters hate King Lear. And then the mother dies and poor Cordelia, the youngest daughter, she just never knew. And she never understood why are you so mean to dad? I mean, he's, he's this great person. How do you... So I was like, dang, that is a twist right there. Um, However, however, the story (laughs) itself does not work if you don't play Lear as a loved character from the get-go. In my opinion, it just, it doesn't work. You have Kent, who is the loyal servant, and Kent is just the pure, nice person of the show. um, And he loves Lear. 
And if this person loves this man who is an awful person, it kind of takes away everything that Kent represents, um, as well as the fool, uh, his jester, kind of the same story there. So it wouldn't make sense if he was this kind of a jerk character and uh, he's got all these people around him that love him with the exception of his two awful daughters. Very interesting. And (laughs) yeah, I think it's, and again, I, not to, not to beat the succession, you know, comparison into the ground but it's just so interesting because i mean i've only seen two uh, two seasons of that show but yeah logan roy is not a love person everybody thinks that they love him so it's such a it's such a, a, a interesting way to think about that and be like hmm maybe that's uh maybe that's why they really just leaned in on like here are some really shitty rich people <laughs> like all around from top to bottom <laughs> yeah yeah and there's there's other themes there's you know ambition greed um, then all of Shakespeare's, uh, main characters have the tragic flaw, right? Whether it's, uh, jealousy or self doubt or, or whatever it might be. And, and there's lots that you could say for Lear, but the fact that he, he needs adoration is, could be certainly something that you mm. look at. And that's something that happens. There's a, um, sort of mirror story within the story of, uh, the Gloucester character and his two sons, and what's happening there and um and what we choose to believe because of the way that we're uh stories are told to us and things like that so you know there's 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 deeper theories um themes in it it's also interesting because uh, something that people sort of i think don't necessarily um think about right away is that so Shakespeare was a working actor and writer and was writing for a sort of a repertory, a repertory of, of actors that he worked with regularly. Um, so there are scenes in Shakespeare, for example, that are very difficult to perform. And he deliberately gave those to one of his actors who had uh, a slight speech impediment just to make mm-hmm. that actor say this like slightly difficult speech to give because he's working with the same actors over and over again. Right. So he's having fun with them in a lot of ways. Um, and um, sort of the thing that they say about Shakespeare's stuff is that a young, in this case, male actor, but a young actor, when an actor's young, they play Hamlet. When they're in the middle of their career, they play Macbeth. And when they're coming to the end of their career, they, that's when they play King Lear. Um, and that's, so I don't know what that means for me. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, um but, um, uh, so there's, there's something about that too, is that if you think of Lear in the context of the other, um, Shakespearean, uh, male main protagonists, um, there's something about that as well, too, is about, uh, at this point, what is this character looking for? And it's sort of unending adoration, uh, and he has to get past that part. So it's an interesting, um, viewpoint of a very different type of character than, uh, um, Hamlet or, or, uh, Romeo might be. Yeah. yeah. So even younger actors could have played Romeo and then Hamlet and then like that, but but it's those main four ones. Yeah. Something else I noticed between the two the two parent roles is the danger of favoritism, and what can happen to these those other sons or daughters of yours that don't feel as loved, and the consequences that can come from that. It's hmm. one thing they both the a the a plot and b plot kind of share. That just speaks to we talk about how 
these plays last a long time, it's because these things are still things we think about, you know, I think in our own families is like how we treat our siblings, how we treat our parents and how our parents treat us. And I think, yeah, when you said that, it really knocked the nails on the head for me about why King Lear is probably still around and still being kind of used in television and movies because it's family dynamics and we're always going to have those in some way. Right. Yeah. And that was going to pretty much echo what I was saying too, is like you see so many similar themes, not just in, yeah, a lot of modern adaptations, but in some of these other shows as well. And just the, the, the feeling of like, like that somebody's owed something too. And I think that's, what's an interesting thing I want to explore about. I think with even Macbeth, because we've talked, uh, you're saying like kind of middle of your career, you play Macbeth. I feel like it kind of completes this list circle. We've started here because I, I think a lot about like this recent adaptation that uh, I think it was Joel Cohen. Correct me on that, Fred. I know, you know, yeah, I <laughs> was think it, it was Joel. the tragedy of Macbeth. I believe so. Yeah. With Denzel and Francis McDormand. And, it was such an interesting thing to to watch that where they put the movie in black and white and they really force you to focus on who these characters are and like what their motivations are. And I feel like I've seen so many different versions of that story. And for some reason it was like, that was the first time I felt like I, I kind of like really latched onto sort of like, ah, I kind of feel bad for him Beth. Cause I always kind of thought like, Oh no, what an asshole. Like, you know, just, he's just an asshole from top to bottom. Like he thinks he's owed this because somebody told him he's going to be a king. Right. Like, <laughs> but it, it just sort of feels like, man, it's like, he's just sort of looking for, for a meaning in some way. And yeah, one of the movies I watched for this, uh, podcast episode, I watched uh, men of respect, which was the John Turturro, uh, take on uh, Macbeth. That's, Modern day, well, it came out in the 90s, and it's kind of like a gangster film. And I just thought it was very interesting that they could kind of filter a lot of the stuff that I saw in the Cohen one with the dynamics between the husband and wife and see it in a new light and see it in a way that I've seen in other shows. It made me think a lot, not just because it was gangster related. I want to bring up our past episode on Sopranos. There is so much of the Hamlet in Sopranos when I was watching this adaptation. The paranoia of the people who are quote-unquote loyal to you and whether or not they're loyal to you or whether they're planning against you Mm -hmm. and just kind of that mania and fear. Like, are these people laughing behind my back? Uh, This adaption, it wasn't like the best movie, but it did did a really good job of taking this kind of mobster world and those problems and the Macbeth story and combining them in a way. And at that moment in the film, I was like, this is working. This is kind of like a timeless feeling. And I, yeah, that was that was a very cool feeling to see that and see it in a way I hadn't seen. it. No, I think it's definitely an interesting thing to think about, because, yeah, obviously I've been watching The Sopranos recently, too, since our episode. And, yeah, you do kind of get those vibes with Tony sort of like. Yeah, you definitely see the the paranoia with him and just how, I mean, and then it comes to fruition where he's paranoid. And then when he's right, it's like then he's so justified in taking action against somebody like Big Pussy in season two. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's just this these interesting things. And it just haunts him, too. It's sort of like the 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 hauntings that, you know, you even say like, like Lady Macbeth sees when she sees the spot in her hand. Right. It's like constantly like she thinks it's like she can't get the spot out. Right. And like. 
it, it just kind of makes me think of, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you made that comparison because yeah. now it's that making me think of that whole story in a totally different light. Yeah. And I will say big pussy is in men of the respect for a couple of scenes. <laughs> There's the connection. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Are there other Macbeth adaptations that you guys have thought about that you really enjoy or anything different about it? Um, I like that fairly recent one where the uh, three sisters is played by one woman. Mm-hmm. I believe it's black and white. That is the tragedy of Macbeth. Yep. Oh That's yeah. Okay. The... Yep. I like that concept of one woman who just pretty much just has those three voices in her head constantly. And she's the only one saying them. I thought that was an interesting take. That was something different that I'd never seen before. There's so much familiar about that movie with the story of Macbeth, but yet, it did feel unique and maybe it was just the choice to put it in black and white. I don't know. And, and it was also during the pandemic too. So I feel like it was just like, yeah. Or like the heat of the pandemic and I was sort of feeling shut in. I'm like, I'm watching this very like dark movie. <laughs> yeah. I will say I watched that during pandemic and it felt like a fever dream, but I do remember the scene with the <laughs> one witch because I think it's uh Mrs. Yeah. Fig from the Harry Potter movies. And she comes in and just shoots threes the whole movie. And like, that's the part that stayed with me <laughs> for that movie. Like she is yeah. fantastic. A hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I, I am, I am very curious about the, the Kurosawa take on, uh, on both King Lear and Macbeth. Cause again, like I said, you know, it's, I, I've seen seven samurai and I've seen Yojimbo and, it's so interesting to to have him almost do a reverse because both of those movies were adapted into popular westerns in Magnificent Seven and uh, I think it was uh, a fistful of dollars and it, it's almost it's just an interesting idea that he kind of went back the other way and it's like well fine if you guys are gonna turn all my my very samurai focused movies into these spaghetti westerns then I'm gonna go back I'm gonna turn Shakespeare into a, a classic Japanese story. And I wish I had I had a time to to explore that, but I was just very very fascinated, especially with how how highly regarded both of those movies are. Yeah, but lest we lest we uh, ignore a popular story that most people are familiar with, and I know we brought it up a couple of times on here, uh, is when Romeo and Juliet. And I know we mentioned I think Beth brought up West Side Story. But you didn't say which West Side Story, Beth. Which one were you talking about? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, they're, they're both it. Um, I will say I have not seen the more recent West Side Story. My understanding is the more recent West Side Story is excellent. I just haven't had a chance to to see it. Um, but yeah, so I guess I was talking about the the older one is the other one where the other one. The older one was the other one where I was watching it more because at the time I was a kid who was doing musicals. And so mm-hmm. I had friends who were really into musicals, even though I'm. I myself am not as into musicals as some people are. I don't have a problem with them. They're a perfectly legitimate form of entertainment. Um, (laughs) But I am probably more likely to see a play than a musical if I have, you know, a single night and just enough money for one one ticket. Um, uh, So we watch West Side Story and then... At the end, they asked, I thought, it's like, oh, it's all right. You know, it's kind of familiar. And then one of the people was like, well, yeah, it's Romeo and Juliet. And I was like, oh, yeah. It is, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn. You know, try here I am trying to be so smart about the Shakespeare and everything else. And then I was like, oh, that's, oh, that's right. That's what that was. <laughs> of course no. And then if you, it's one of those things where if you go back and watch it with that lens, you're like, oh, what a clever and interesting way to reframe it. Because 
adaptations are great. Not every adaptation of everything is successful. Sometimes people make a choice to try to make a choice that's different than other choices that <laughs> others have made. And then you go, this is why they don't do this with this. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> like, this is why this isn't set to this kind of music generally. Or this is why you don't decide that this character is a villain. Because then it doesn't work if they're the villain and this character is the hero or something like that. Um uh, but but yeah, so it's a, a very successful and interesting um, way to reframe it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it's definitely, I mean, it definitely adds something more. And I think the, the reason I like the recent movie I, a little bit more is because, I mean, while the first movie obviously was the first one to do it, I think they, they got the representation a little bit better this time. Maybe not well, casting Natalie yes, Wood as absolutely. a Puerto Rican woman. <laughs> Absolutely. And like I said, we've already talked about we've already talked about the fact that, you know, um oh God. Othello. Exactly. So like, yeah, obviously it makes great strides in terms of actually representing uh the the characters a lot better as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just haven't like I, said, I just haven't had a chance to see it yet. It was one of those movies that I, if I want, you know, that seemed like a good movie to see at a theater that came out at a time when I wasn't seeing movies in the theater yet. Uh, again, after in terms of pand- pandemic times, and then sure, I'm slightly disinclined to watch a musical on my um, thirteen by th- you know thirteen inch computer screen. Um, <laughs> musicals are spectacle, mm-hmm. right? So uh, watching it in like. My tiny unseeable screen is <laughs> it's just a little less interesting to me than if it was like, oh, you can actually go see this live version or something. And it's definitely just yeah. hard to beat that 60s one for sure. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, the 60s one has has problems, but it's also it's I mean, it's flipping West Side Story. <laughs> like, right. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, my guy Steve shot the hell out of the new one, but I do love the. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, you can look look beyond i think a couple of the things that might have been a little more problematic about it now to recognize you know what a what a great story it is or what a what a well-filmed movie it is and it's i mean obviously you know you get rita moreno in both those movies too you know she reprises well i didn't reprise the same role obviously but uh interesting that yeah that role itself became well it was an oscar winner in both versions which is i think says something to this story that one that this was an adaptation of a, a a play that was that adapted from another play, but also the fact that yeah, it's it the characters are so rich and everything is so well put together about it that it's just been nominated to the T up and down the board both times it got made. It's like Star is born. Is that a Shakespeare adaptation? No, it's not. <laughs> I mean, everything uh, is really if you, yeah. if, if you look for it. I mean, there's a reason that the word Shakespearean exists, right? The themes are so classic. Yeah. and But I think that's what's so interesting, too, is because I think you do see a lot of people who are like, oh, that's so Shakespearean. But yeah, and then it's almost like I think the reason I wanted to bring up Romeo and Juliet is because that story is so often referenced anytime it is like, oh, here's one side. You have X person from this clan or x or y person from that clan and they they come together with this forbidden romance like you almost can't speak about a forbidden romance without making some kind of comparison to romeo and juliet where it's just been done over and over again that it really is something when something does rise up to the ether 
and I wouldn't say that, you know, that's necessarily the play that defines Shakespeare, but I would imagine if you paneled 25 people on the street, you're probably going to get that one more often than the rest, right? Definitely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason we started with that one with the kind of sort of, because Hamlet was written, but we're like, eh, I think Roman Juliet might be a better one to start this with because it was, it was something new that we were trying on the old Schmitz and Giggles uh, docket, but yeah. And it is, it was a worry going forward, going with, I mean, Hamlet, yes, everyone knows to be or not to be, but not every person could sit down and give you two or three sentences of what the story is about, unless they, of course, mention the Lion King. Uh, and then right. past that, it's, you know, your average person's like, eh, maybe Julius Caesar, maybe. Mm-hmm. Other than that, yeah, there's, you know. So um, it's one of the greatest things, though, about about writing these two is when people come in and they say, I knew nothing about Othello and I was able to follow that story exactly like the whole time. I was never lost. So I think when you do an adaptation, you got to be careful uh, of, of making it to, well, even like sketch writing, if you start talking about, you know, back to the future, if you get too deep in back to the future references, you're going to lose some of your audience, unfortunately. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's, you know, just another thing to keep in mind. Right. Like if you mention a DeLorean, like everyone goes, aha, I got it. But yeah, you talk about, I don't even know, like Mr. Peabody's pine trees. Yeah. yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> Twin pines, yeah. it's like, yeah, like obviously you're going to lose people in a, in a hurry. Well, I think also a good parody has to stand on its own as a good story Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Like, that's why I really, I've said this often, like one of my favorite action movies is Hot Fuzz and one of my, and my absolute favorite zombie movie is Shaun of the Dead Mm -hmm. because they are both incredibly entertaining and engaging and fun and well-written and well-acted stories on their own beyond the fact that they're also very hilarious, accurate parodies, right? Yeah. Um, I don't really like zombie stuff that much, um, but Shaun of the Dead is a fantastic film that's, yes, it gets to the the heart of what can be funny or silly about zombie movies, but it also has a lot of pathos, and it also, you care about what's happening to the characters. And so I think certainly something that we that we strive for and then i think patrick really achieves very well and and the and the cast that come together is the story that we're telling is also itself an interesting story to tell like the the changes that we're making to it and, and that sort of thing so i think i think that's important too right um because yeah. you're going to have people who are like oh i'm such a huge fan of this it was so fun to make you to watch you sort of have fun with it and then you're going to have people who are I, I again I'm not a huge fan of Shakespeare and it was I just thought what you were doing was was fun. Uh same thing happened when we did Dracula. Um but yeah, like Shaun of the Dead, there's people who love zombie movies who are like, that's one of my favorite ones. And there's people like me who who just don't find zombie movies all that interesting. And I was like, this is actually a really good one as the genre goes. Like I've seen plenty, it's just that's the best one in my opinion. Sure. Now with the adaptations or the parodies that you guys are writing for Schmitz and Giggles, is it like like a Romeo and Juliet where or I'm talking about the Boss Lerman one now where it's like, you'll set it in a different time and then, but it's still using the same dialogue or is it, nope, we're going to update the dialogue too. And also use modern day or no, it's like, we're in that time. We're using some of the dialogue, but we're also using some kind of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, trying to modernize it for people. Um, I mean, the way, 
the way I have been doing it, and this may change, uh, it almost did change with Dracula, is I s- try to stay as true to the original story as possible. Okay. And I don't know if you've seen the Family Guy Star Wars uh, parodies. I have, um, yes. Okay, so as far as style goes, I would say that is probably the most uh, best comparison just because it's still Star Wars. It's just Seth MacFarlane throwing in bits and heightening ideas <laughs> and making a character a certain way that, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, that was true. But, okay, Seth MacFarlane just really pointed that out. So that style of like, oh, he was very true. I mean, he even had the music in there. He worked with George Lucas on that. Um, so, and obviously you really cared about star Wars as the stories and the characters. So yeah, it is the story. I mean, if you go, you will learn the story of the, these Shakespeare stories, but it is definitely, I'd say 90 to 95% contemporary language with some of the more classical lines, the classic classical lines sprinkled in. Got it. I think that's the best way to do it. If you're adapting. I, yeah, I mean, that's what I would want to see. I guess that's kind of another rule with writing comedy. It's like, well, if I wouldn't find this funny, or if I walked in and didn't know the story of Othello, would I still be entertained by this? And, right. <laughs> yeah, when I was in high school, we did West Side Story, and it was nice. The, the theater director, he inserted dialogue pieces from Romeo and Juliet throughout the play. And I thought that was just a really nice touch because... It highlighted the language of Shakespeare, but everyone was able to kind of keep up with the story because either it was in the form of West Side Story or they were just familiar with West Side Story. But having a scene end on like just a piece of that dialogue or just incorporating anyway, I think that's a great way to get people more familiar with it. And it just kind of shows like, oh, this is an adaptation of something else and it comes from somewhere else. I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And I was even going to say to that effect then, Fred, too, that with West Side Story, I think there's one reason why that adaptation, I think, maybe resonates with more people than something like Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet, because it it obviously it, it takes not only adapts a story that they're familiar with and they kind of following a lot of those similar beats, but it's told in a way that like, you understand you're not you're not having to try and translate Shakespeare but it, and I think that's what's so jarring. I think why some people really love the style of that Lerman one where it's like, oh, gosh, look at they're all dressed like modern day. It's 1996, but they're also talking like Shakespeare, <laughs> you know, it's Shakespeare dialect. It's sort of like, OK, so I see Leo pulled out a gun. Um, hmm, all right. What's what's he saying? <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. driving cars. I, You know, as I was watching the theater, I thought, I wonder if they would have like no fear Shakespeare that and just translated it to a t in modern day language i wonder if it would have got bashed for that i mean obviously you're going to lose the beauty of the language but yeah that was tough for me as a freshly out of high school watching that going oh okay i'm not gonna be able to follow this yeah yeah. it's Mm -hmm. a unique watch now but it's definitely a uh I don't know. It, it's an acquired taste. You have to really like the style, I think, of what what they're trying to do with it. And maybe that's a great segue here, everyone, to jump into our coulda, woulda, shoulda segment and start inventing um, some new ideas for adaptations that you have never seen before, whether they are for a parody show or perhaps for a movie that you've never seen. 
And I, I guess, yeah, that's, so that's the question I have for you is, is what is something that you would have liked to seen or maybe would have liked to seen different about an adaptation like Bob Lerman's Romeo and Juliet? Would you wanted to see that with modern dialect versus the, uh, the actual like written lines from the play? Ooh, I, I feel like I'm going to say something and that'll be like, Oh no, that's, that's the thing. They already did that. That was a, sh-, you know, so, cause a lot of it has been done. I remember thinking Hamlet as a one man show would be interesting. Like all mm-hmm. of it's in his head. And of course, you know, well, yeah, that's been done. I'm like, okay, never mind. That has been done. Who did that? Um, it's their stage, their stage, uh, adaptations of it. Um, hmm. I don't know who's done. It. I've never seen it, but people have called me out on it being done. So. Not a lot of sci-fi adaptations of Shakespeare that I know of. <laughs> Hamlet on Mars. Yeah, let's put him in space. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I mean, outside of Forbidden Planet, which we talked about That's a little bit true. already. Forbidden Planet would be one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It would be interesting to see some of the histories um, done. Um, although it does sound, just from what I've heard about this session, it sounds like maybe there's some of those in there, but I think the histories can get a bad rap because they're the ones that people don't tend to know as much unless they are Shakespeare fans. Mm-hmm. Also, they're steeped in British history. And so for an American audience, there's not an immediate um, entry point there. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would be interested to see some of the, because those have amazing right obviously writing in them and, and scenes and and character choices and that kind of stuff and um it would be interested to see uh those turn in i know that there are some um uh some uh limited series shows and those kind of things that have done that have been shakespearean um in that but but again i i what's interesting about those is i think like the political intrigue ones tend to be Shakespeare's tragedies and not his histories. And I just think it'd be interested to, to see some of the histories done just because they don't get as much um, play. Mm-hmm. Uh, the comedies, the tragedies and the philosophies tend to get uh, much more. So, yeah. And it would be interesting to see something. Yeah. Like that. And I know we, I mean, there's so many adaptations, obviously we haven't gotten enough love for a lot of the things, but I think one of the things I enjoy about a movie like 10 things I hate about you is it takes something that is a little more official where it's involving Lords or, you know, or something like that. And it's like, no, let's just put this in a high school setting and let's, let's see them do it. I mean, and and I think the brilliance of that story and why people love it so much is one that the cast is so charming, like from top to bottom, really. I mean, you have even just like a lot of people who we're sort of entering the public sphere, I think for the first time with like Heath Ledger, you know, and they're like, Oh my gosh, what a, what a charming person he is. But like to, to try and maybe take something like that, where maybe it's not necessarily the historical drama in the same way of Napoleon, that's going to have Joaquin Phoenix and doing Julius Caesar. But what if you did that with like, yeah, something like something similar to succession where it's like a corporate CEO of somebody who is slowly kind of taking over like all these different like media conglomerates, which is a great commentary on what's happening with Disney right now. Right. Like they're literally just eating up all these other companies and yeah, you could do something like that where, yeah, maybe it is his like, it's almost kind of like the social network. (laughs) I am always interested when they do a modern retelling of anything, the Jesus Christ superstar, when they come out with like machine guns and like vans, Mm -hmm. I get excited for some reason. I love just taking something that is like (laughs) kind of so old 
and modernizing it, but keeping the language the same. I think that, like, I really liked, I couldn't tell you anything about it, but I remember really enjoying the Coriolanus uh, updated version with, like, Gerard Butler and, uh, was it Rafe Hines? Yeah. Uh, I just think it's kind of cool to see Shakespeare, but with, like, a, I don't know, like a modern view. I think that just uh, brings people in. It also just kind of makes it feel fresh at the same time. Definitely. Like, I, I, you know, and we brought up She's the Man before, too. But I just kind of love the idea of, like, let's just throw some very interesting actors in a totally kind of dumb story that covers something, though, that really has such a rich text like, you know, like a, a Hamlet, you know, where we do see that kind of come into a modern scope. I mean, obviously, that has a tragic end, but... I don't know. You know. Yeah. Have the Muppets haven't done any sort of like full on Shakespeare uh, adaptations, have they? I don't think so. Could you? What would you pitch for one? Like, what do you think would would serve the Muppets well? Probably a comedy of some sorts, right? Mm-hmm. Y- yeah. Or what they do so well is taking serious stuff and inserting their own humor into it. Uh, you know, like a like a Treasure Island or something of that sort. I, I don't even know if it would have to be a comedy. Matter of fact, I think they would probably do better with a drama and sprinkling in their own Muppet humor. <laughs> well, I mean, the Muppet Show did it sometimes. Like on the Muppet Show, there was a Hamlet version. Mm-hmm. Um, I know for that. So I don't think they've ever yeah. done it as like a full. Right. Yeah. Movie. Wizard of Oz and Treasure Island. I, I don't know. I if mean, Muppet Christmas to Carol too. Obviously, they right. did Christmas Carol, which. Oh yeah. I, but uh, I think what's fun about that, yeah. we just did an episode on the Muppets recently, so it's all very fresh. But um, yep. the idea that yeah, you get like a serious actor of some sort. Like, let's just say you get Kate Blanchett right doing just some stone cold, like very serious performance, and like this, like something super, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like a. I don't know. Yeah, it's with Kermit yeah, and Lady Macbeth. Macbeth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's like, like I'm Tim Spot. All right, you feeling okay over there? <laughs> Would that make Fozzie like Macduff or whatever his name is? Macduff. <laughs> that would be kind of great. Yeah. Yeah. I, There's my that's a good have, one. Could have, should have. Yeah. Should be. No, I like the idea though of of doing the. Yeah, the Muppets. I like the idea of doing the um, one of the histories, uh, or yeah, whether it's doing a straight adaptation of that, or you do something a little more modern. I don't know, Fred. Any others that you had that you were thinking of? Um, no, I think it's just exciting to see actors you know, or just updating the setting, or just having a modern take to it. I mean. I've been watching a lot of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I'd love to see that cast just do <laughs> just do some sort of Shakespeare. <laughs> I think there's enough talent between them as actors. They could pull something interesting off. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just trying to envision them doing anything like this. It almost reminds me of like the episode where they they like are retelling the history of like how the Liberty Bell got its crack, and I'm just imagining them <laughs> doing something like that. Or just very pompous. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't have the right answer for this, but I would just throw out, I think, like some sort of animated movie taking a crack out of big story like Lion King did. I feel there's got to be another 
Shakespeare play that is ripe to do this to. I mean, I guess they burned through three with three Lion Kings, but there's got to be <laughs> something. Just I love the idea of just making it accessible for everyone, you know, and just having young people have a way yeah. in. That just makes it exciting. Sure. I would like to see the the Romeo and Juliet, the Bosler and Romeo and Juliet, where it's just Leo doing Leo things, but not necessarily speaking Shakespeare. As much as I appreciate how what what a what a choice that was to do it that way it would have been really fun to just see him i don't know kind of doing something like he did in once upon a time in hollywood like like as like one of those characters he plays i'm i'm sure you'd get like i don't know if i would use the word better but you would definitely get different performances if they didn't have to worry about uh kind of keeping that language intact but i will say before we move away from that romeo and juliet I do like that they use the language because that movie seems almost unworld. Like it seems from completely different from anything else I've seen. So it seems like it takes place in a place that doesn't exist. And I think that's what that movie has going for me. That doesn't look like a California. I know. Mm -hmm. Maybe we just need to see another Kenneth Branagh, him doing something completely different. Well, I don't want him to stop making uh, pro pro movies. Not not rock pro <laughs> the movies. Agatha Christie's. Yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> I, I mean, just don't don't let him stop doing those. <laughs> I will say for Kenneth Branagh, this isn't even related to a coulda woulda shoulda, but like something that I I, I maybe my coulda woulda shoulda is I would like to see more Shakespeare adaptations out of him because I did watch that uh, Much Ado About Nothing uh, version that he did from 1993, and I do appreciate how much I felt like even in comparison to a movie, maybe like Bosler, Miss Romeo and Juliet. I know we keep coming back to that one, but he was able to express, I think with so much of body language, what people were trying to say to one another, especially in a very dialogue heavy production, like much ado about nothing. Like you were never questioning exactly like oh, what, what what's going on right now like you knew you knew when he was torn up about it or something like that like he just was had a, such a good grasp of benedict and uh and just making like his his like his like oh i can't believe that you know she's into me or what something like that and it's just it's, i don't know you just i thought i really appreciated the performances he could get out of everybody and he did his best with Keanu Reeves. Was, <laughs> I was going to say, I always remember that movie because I watched it in a drama class. And oh, the whole man. time, the drama teacher was just dunking on Keanu Reeves. <laughs> and I remember even saying to him, like, I don't know, he's kind of good in The Matrix. And just like, he's like, no, no. And I mean, like, looking back, I mean, he showed us a lot of movies. So I don't know if he'd really had room to talk. You know, like, we probably yeah. should have actually been performing, doing stuff. But I just remember him being so vicious to the guy. Yeah. That's because, I mean, that one thing that Kiana does, he mm. does very well. I will not put my name on a podcast that bashes Keanu Reeves. I'm just putting this on there right now. Oh, no, we're <laughs> pro. I'm talking about American treasure. <laughs> And yeah. and I'm that's on the director to get the performance out of him if they need to get that like he's he's in there get it out of them you know I mean the thing about an adaptation that uses the the text is that you have to you have to get around the text so you know what I mean and what I don't mean like that is I don't mean change the text I mean you have to use the text in the way that it was written so that it just sounds like regular speech. There's a great moment in the, in the Anthony Hopkins Lear where I'm watching it and you, 
you know, there's amazing actors in there. Hopkins is in there. Florence Pugh, who I think is one of the, like our, I think there's the actress of our generation perhaps, mm-hmm. or probably not my generation, a much younger generation. Um, <laughs> um, but Emma Thompson is in it and, and Jim Broadbent and all that kind of stuff. And what's interesting is you're watching it and, and you're sort of judging which actors make it sound like speech and which actors make it sound like someone saying Shakespeare words, right? Which there's a difference. <laughs> and what's interesting is Emma Thompson goes and you're like, huh, that was um, stilted and weird and just sounded like she was, but it's when she's lying to Lear. She's such a good actress mm. that what she does when she's lying to Lear in that scene is just say the Shakespeare words and not give them the inflections and the pauses and the, and the, um, you know, the um, weight that the certain words need and all that. She doesn't choose her verbs and all that stuff. So when she's talking, you're like, well, this isn't believable. She's just reciting something. And then the second it's her as Goneril in a real scene, when Lyra's visiting her house, you're like, oh no, she's got this. It's 100%. But what's tough is the first lines that those two characters really say in the show, Goneril and Regan, are them lying. So it's difficult. You watch it and you're like, oh, these two amazing actors like my favorite people like are kind of stilted in this and then you realize like oh no literally they pulled the curtain with they're supposed to not be believable and the other actress whose name is escaping me you can just tell she's lying right Mm -hmm. that's what it you know but with emma thompson it's not just that you can tell she's lying it's that she performs the shakespeare in a way where it's like these are the shakespeare words that i have to say and in this order but I'm not going to give them any sort of inflection or so you don't believe her in a, in a different way. Cause she's that damn good. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. So I think that's up to, I think when you do make it an a- adaptation of Shakespeare, if you're going to use the language, you have to not go, Oh God, this language is so hard. How can anybody possibly understand this language? You have to go like, okay, this is what they're saying. Like, what do we need to emphasize in this in the same way we'd emphasize anything else? And so somebody just needed to do that with Keanu who's a very nice man yeah. and I will not have him bash him. Oh no, we're pro for Keanu. You got to take that oh, with Jerry Smith at Seminole High School. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I don't know. It it wasn't the strongest Keanu performance, but I think, you know, it it does fall on, you know, Brandon or whoever else to get it out of him. If you want good um, Keanu doing Shakespeare, watch My Own Private Idaho. Oh yeah, I've heard good things. Never seen it. River Phoenix too, right? Yes, yes. Nice. Love it. I'll have to watch that one soon. So I think that gets us then to the end of our episode, guys. Long long, long journey here. And I know we've only barely scratched the surface because there are so many adaptations of Shakespeare. But I want to know what your top three Shakespeare adaptations are. And Beth, would you do us the honors of kicking us off? Um, sure. If we're allowed to do ones that are just straight, uh, adaptations as well. I, yeah. I think the, um, Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson, um, much ado about nothing is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know it's gonna maybe make people roll their eyes, but I think Lion King is a fantastic movie, mm-hmm. whether or not you realize it's Hamlet or not. And then when you do, you're like, Oh, that's fantastic. Um, that's so good. And then uh, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to say forbidden planet because forbidden planet is another one of those ones. That's like, <laughs> Oh yeah. 
You laugh, go watch Forbidden Planet, and realize while you're watching it that this is the first sci-fi film that ever came out. And they knocked it out of the park. And if they had not done a good job with it, um, all of the history of sci-fi movies could have been very, very changed. But it is also an incredibly smart, well-done movie that is existential in a way and metaphysical in a way. Um, And that when you realize it's The Tempest, you're like, holy crap. That's awesome. So those are my top three. That's wonderful. Good pick. Don't, don't apologize for Forbidden Planet. I want to watch it. It sounds it's awesome. Great. It's, no, it's, that's it's going great. on my list. Yeah. So good. For sure. Uh, Patrick, would you like to go next? Uh, sure. Yeah, I will go back to uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Just that, again, that spinoff kind of feel. Uh, and then off of that, and I know Lion King 2, uh, one and a half was not a good movie, but I respected the fact that they were like, all right, we did Hamlet. Now let's follow suit and let's now do Rosencrantz and Guildenstern with the characters. So uh, the movie itself, maybe not, but the idea of it, I thought, I was like, good yeah. for them. Good for them. Uh, instead of like just a quick, cash grab and just making some kidsy kind of thing. It was like, no, let's stay true to what we're doing here. Um, and then I, I, because I was introduced to this one, at one of my first Shakespeare shows uh, from a great teacher in college named John McClay uh, was mm. the Kenneth Brenner Hamlet is it's, it's just, it's a masterpiece. It really is. And there's a lot of big names in it too, but. And it's just like, how did they even get all these people? Yeah. It's, it's great. Fred, would you like to go next? Sure, sure. Um, I want to, I guess, so this is an adaptation, but I got to throw it in. I'm not going to do it as my, in my top three, but I got to say, like, the Shakespeare thing in, like, film that has stayed with me the most is probably Dead Poet Society. And mm-hmm. there's kind of a, there's an adaption within the movie. And I just wanted to shout out that movie just because that one, like, I don't know, when I think Shakespeare in movies, I always think of that movie for some reason. Mm-hmm. But uh, for my top three, I mean, number one with the bullet, I got to say Romeo Must Die. Um, wow. <laughs> no, that's not it. Uh, I'm going to do Lion King. Hmm. Uh, I may have nostalgia glasses or whatever, but I do love that movie a lot. That um, I I'm not too familiar with the source material material of that, like the actual play. But the movie Lion King is big for me because that's the first movie I saw in theaters. It was a movie my dad took me to and I lost my dad when I was 12. And I feel the big part of that movie is about losing your dad and about living in the shadow and trying to live up to something that you're probably making much bigger in your head, which I think the Lion King movie does really well i mean it has the whole scene where he's in the sky above him and that that scene in general is just kind of like uh what's the thing in the spider verse called now where it's like the event in your oh, life <laughs> the the canon, canon yeah that's event. my canon event is watching that scene like when i was oh. not when i was young but when i was like 16 and just like what am i doing but then yeah. i'm gonna go uh 10 things i hate about you mm. And then mm. uh, the 60s West Side Story, that was just a VHS I had and just played constantly. And I got to say what's great about that one is they actually kind of committed to the the tragedy of it. And a lot of these 
do not do that. The end of uh, Romeo Must Die is Jet Lee and Aaliyah walking away from the crime scene with their arms around each other. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like, I think there's something to be said about committing to the tragedy of Shakespeare in those plays. So those, those would be my top three. And again, another honorable mention would be The Northman. I think that's a pretty good adaptation. <laughs> that is a good one. Yeah. I am a hundred percent with you on the Dead Poet Society thing. When I think of Midsummer, that's that's my that's my mind goes to that movie. Yeah, which absolutely good. Um, good link in there is in Much Ado About Nothing. Also has Robert Sean Leonard, who plays uh the the student in Dead Poet Society, who is in that um production of uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, really? Yeah. So a little connection there between the two movies. Hmm. Fred, I, I hate to say that I actually have the same top three <laughs> as you. I, exactly word for word because they were the movies. Uh, same thing with Lion King, probably one of the first movies I saw in theaters. I was becoming a teenager when I saw 10 Things I Hate About You. I had such a crush on Larissa Olenek because of uh, the show Secret World of Alex Mack that was on Nickelodeon. And when I saw she was in the movie, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is great. And I just loved the cast so much. I felt like it was like, these are people I want to hang out with. Like, <laughs> so it was, it was just a, a very uh, a very coming of age movie for me, even though it's not necessarily a coming of age story. But, you know, I was also going to give an honorable mention to one. And it's it's one that's really sour just because of the person behind it. But it was the 2012 ad- adaptation of Much Ado About Nothing, the Joss Whedon one. And I feel so bad about that because I love the cast in that that movie. I love the cast in the Whedon verse in general, but obviously he is a very toxic individual and it's really hard to love a lot of the things that he made at one point. But I try to at least lend some some love to those people because they, they all seem like genuinely really great actors and they don't get to do enough things because it's, I don't know, for whatever reason or another, everyone kind of puts them into that that box of like, oh, you're a Whedon person, so... I don't know, but yeah, just a fun one to see. So I think that gets us then to the end of our episode. But uh, before we let you go, and thank you both, Patrick and Beth, for for joining us. Is, is there anything? Yeah, no, we really thank you. Really appreciate you coming on. Is there anything you would like to plug though? Which <laughs> I imagine there might be. <laughs> yes, there. Are... We have a show coming up at the next act uh, theater space. Um, it is the Comedy of King Lear, kind of, sort of, August 10th through the 12th. Ticket information can be found at www.schmitzngiggles.org. Wonderful. Yeah, definitely check out schmitzngiggles.org. Yep. And uh, that would also I would also be mine. But also um, uh, Optimus Theater, Shakespeare in the Park uh, shows are happening right now. I also uh, do some things with them. I'm not in the performances. I do some behind the scenes stuff. And um, uh, they have a really cool thing of they uh, do abridged versions. So about 90 minutes of, of Shakespeare in classic Shakespeare language dress, but they have a dramaturge, uh, the fabulous ML Coger, um, who, uh, who shortens them down. 
down and focuses on just sort of one element of the show or like one group of characters. Um, they're doing Cymbeline this summer. Um, also part of the, the goal of Shakespeare in the park is to bring Shakespeare to communities all over Milwaukee, particularly communities where there might not be access to Shakespeare as much. Um, so, and also to the parks and the shows are completely free. Um, they're free to, uh, the thing that we say is, uh, they're free to see, but not free to produce. So they can always, uh, uh, use more audience and more donations and all that kind of stuff because they do um, pay their actors and their crew and everyone else. Um, and um, But they do really, really great work uh, for free um, in the park system. And then they also have um, uh, Forest Home Cemetery still coming up. And then they do one on the lawn of the Marcus Center. So um, oh, wow. if you go to Optimist Theater's website, uh, Optimist Theater, theater is spelled R-E, um, and check out there or, or look up Shakespeare in the park on facebook shakespeare in the park milwaukee um and find out about it they have there's um multiple they have uh the second half of their season is still coming so no matter when this drops you'll probably be able to uh check out a few and chances are they're coming to somewhere near you and uh i appreciate the work that they do as well yeah that sounds great yeah that's optimisttheater.org as Beth yep. said re perfect mm-hmm. definitely have to look that up i've never been uh, Fred, what about you? Anything you'd like to plug? Uh, I'll just take this time to plug uh, Schmitz and Giggles and the King Lear show. Uh, we went to the last show, the Dracula show, and we had mm-hmm. a blast. I know you were there too, Tom. Um, it's really a great time. It's a good way to get familiar with material, or if you're already familiar, it's good to see a parody. It's a, it's always a great time with Schmitz and Giggles. So, yeah, I'll just, just plug that. Yeah, go check that out. Yeah, definitely. It should be a great show. Uh, and then I'll just plug the podcast. Uh, you know, we appreciate you being a listener. If you'd like to rate and review us, please do so. Uh, please give us five stars in your review if you really like us that much. Uh, you can always drop us a donation at buymeacoffee.com slash SOTF. You can give us a one-time donation or repeat donation if you feel so inclined. Uh, and you can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at State of the Franchise Podcast with Tom and Fred. Thank you all for listening this week. Thank you once again, Patrick and Beth, for being here. And yeah, yeah. Thank really you. appreciate you guys being on here and plugging the show. It's awesome talking Shakespeare adaptations. You are a fountain of knowledge. <laughs> and for all you listeners, stay tuned for next time where we'll be talking about new metal. Should be a fun one. <laughs> <laughs> I have equally as many thoughts on that. <laughs> please, please write in. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> All right, bye. 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 We'll see you then. And time is on the mic. I got no cares because all I want to do is charge my phone and drive this into you. And what the talk do you about? We'll all be.